Today, we're going to be looking at the story of Exodus. That's the preaching series we're in, and I have the pleasure of taking you through chapters 7 to 10. Um, like Rob said, my name's Tom. I'm uh, on the leadership team here, and I've been part of the church for many years with my family. So if I've not met you, it will be a pleasure to meet you afterwards. Let's just recap where we've got, have we? Because Owen introduced us to the series at the beginning part of Exodus with the burning bush and God using a flawed man to accomplish his will, which was particularly meaningful for me because I'm deeply flawed. And then we had size preach, which was opposition from without and opposition from within last week. Uh, and now we have Moses poised for the big showdown with Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 7 to 10. So this is the car chase of the Bourne film. This is the shootout of the Spaghetti Western. This is kind of where it all crescendos here. Um, and we're obviously, we're based in ancient Egypt. We've got a map of modern Egypt. Obviously, we've got a map. It's very square. It's a very square country, very angular. But it didn't look like that. The next map is slightly more indicative of Egypt's kingdom at the time, which we should have, but I'll just move on until it appears. Um, we know that we're in a city because Moses speaks to Pharaoh and leaves. Yes, that's, that's ancient Egypt, sort of a yellowy blob there, less angular. Um, so let's open our Bibles. That's what we should do. We should open our Bibles. It's always a good place to start. Let's open our Bibles to chapter 7, and we can see right at the very beginning of this story in verse 8 of chapter 7, God says to Pharaoh, go and prove yourself to him by working a miracle. So that's where we're going to start. And the ancient Egyptians, interesting, they worshipped anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 gods, depending on which Wikipedia source you click on, all the way from Bez, who was this minor god. He was a tiny little dwarf, but he had a big head and googly eyes. Um, so he was a tiny weeny sort of little god. And then we had the sun god Ra, who was, um, no, not plague two, go back. That, that's it. Yeah, we're not quite there yet, but we will be. And then we had the sun god Ra, who was responsible for the light and sun, and he was the creator god, um, creator of the universe and the giver, giver of life. Um, so yeah, lots of gods. And we don't often use the name Yahweh when we're talking about uh, the actual God of the universe, but it's quite helpful here because I use the word God a lot. So I'm going to just use Yahweh a bit more than you might be useful, used to. Um, and that's the name that he, he revealed to Moses. Um, so yeah, let, let, let's go. I just want to explain that the, the first half of this preach, okay, I'm going to walk through the plagues. We're going to walk through the plagues one by one, and we're going to look at the significance of the plagues. And then towards the end, we're just going to take a little bit of time um, looking at some of the principles that are in the text. And first of all, I want to share directly what I felt God put on my heart this morning and give space to respond with prayer afterwards. And it was this expression, fresh faith, that was on my mind while preparing for this preach. And then interestingly, Sai used those words last week, fresh faith. And then I had a picture of a prayer card. You know the flash cards you can buy? I had a picture of a bundle of prayer cards put into a drawer gathering dust. And I felt like God say, it's time to take your prayers out of the drawer. It's time to revisit some of the things that God has put on your heart that you've put away, that you thought, no, the answer's no, or the answer's maybe. It's time to take them out of the drawer again. Revisit your plans. Rekindle the fire. So, God says to Moses, in verse 1 to 7, say all that is commanded to you. 
or be obedient to my words. And he's saying, God will lead his people out of Egypt. But he warns Moses, there will be fearsome acts of judgment on Egypt as Pharaoh refuses to listen to Moses. So God outlines what's going to happen before we get going. Moses is in the picture. And the incredible part of this part of biblical history is that God hasn't actually been fully revealed yet. He reveals himself directly to Moses as I am. He has the burning bush incident. And now God is revealing himself to Pharaoh and the nation of Israel and the known world. It's something that we take for granted as Christians. We know that God is. We know that he was. We know that he always will be. And sometimes it's hard to comprehend that he wasn't revealed to his people yet. Abraham, when we went through Genesis last year, it just really occurred to me that he he didn't even really know how to worship God. He just sort of built tabernacles. There was no temple system. There's this progression of God explaining who am I to his people. And in the Old Testament, God is revealing more and more of his nature until we get to the birth of Jesus. And, And in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the perfect imprint of his nature. So the next three chapters of Exodus Exodus is a revelation of his complete power and control over creation and supremacy over pagan gods. Moses demonstrates this fact to Pharaoh with a sign, so he turns his staff into a snake, and despite this, after demonstrating to Pharaoh that Moses at least represents a deity with power, Pharaoh predictably refuses to listen to Moses leading to the second sign and the first plague on Egypt. Now, don't look at your Bibles. Who can list every plague in order? Plague one, quickly. Flood. You failed. Plague two. No. Plague three. No. Plague four. Possibly. Okay, so I think we're just going to get on the preach, and there's going to be a teaching element to this preach as well, which I think clearly you need. Um, So, (laughs) that didn't go as I had planned. Plague one. Let's have the first plague slide up. So, in verse 15, God says, go to Pharaoh. Where? Let me read it. Let me actually read it. He says, go to Pharaoh as he is going out to the water. So, he's interrupting Pharaoh's worship of the Nile, and he's putting his finger on the purported divinity of it. This is Hapti. Hapti was the god of the Nile and the god of flooding the Nile. And flooding of the Nile was an essential part of the Egyptian calendar. It did happen a lot. The floodwaters irrigated the land, and they deposited fertile silt on all the plains for growing crops. It's what made Egypt so powerful. And that led the Egyptians to worship the river as the god Hapti. And Moses usurps this god by using the staff, which is symbolic of the power of Yahweh, to utterly destroy any value of the Nile whatsoever, killing all the fish and leaving no source of water for them to drink. God tells Pharaoh what is going to happen and when it is going to happen so there can be no mistaking his authority. And this would have been immediately very, very shocking and devastating to the Egyptians who were recognized by all the other kingdoms for the Nile. God stamps his authority on the physical backbone of the country and its economy. The pride and joy of the nation 
has been turned into a stinking, festering river of blood. And the Bible does say blood. It doesn't say like blood. It says blood. But this is a merciful warning to Egypt that soon their land will be filled with the blood that they themselves will shed and that further disaster is coming. And Pharaoh, he refuses to be moved by this. And just like the sign of the snake, his heart remains hardened. So God, it says, if we go to chapter 8, he basically says, go back to Pharaoh and this time warn him that if he doesn't obey, he's going to strike Egypt with a multitude of frogs. Now slide next one, slide next one is Heket, the god Heket was an Egyptian frog-headed goddess of fertility. Can you see the pattern here? Yahweh demonstrates his power over the Egyptian god by producing out of the Nile such a number of frogs that they cover the whole land. And it's like Yahweh is saying, if you want to worship a god of fertility, a frog-headed god of fertility, I'm going to show you how fertile frogs can be. They're in the dough being baked into bread. They're in the ovens being grilled into food. They're in the bedrooms squirming about between people's sheets. They're swarming and croaking everywhere. And interestingly, only the wealthy would have had bedrooms. So the text is telling us that Pharaoh was personally affected by this plague. And and, and as a response to this plague, just like the Nile, Look at what the magicians do in the text. Just be skimming through the text as I read it. They also make frogs come out of the water. Well, number one, this doesn't sound particularly difficult to do at this junction, does it? There's frogs everywhere. Well done, you. And two, you're not helping. How is that of any help? That's not a solution. Look, sire, more frogs. Brilliant. The mighty god Heret is able to at most make the problem worse and do nothing to remove the plague of Yahweh. And a crucial thing happens here in response from Pharaoh. He's so desperate with what's going on in verse 8 that he says, pray to Yahweh. He uses his name now. Pray to Yahweh. I recognize you represent a deity. Pray, pray for the frogs to go. And then you can go and worship him. But he betrays his word. And as soon as the prog, progs, frogs are gone, he hardens his heart and cheats Moses. And there's two interesting things happening here. First of all, that God used frogs and not, say, carrot cake or fridge magnets. Um, Bear with me on that one. Some more secular commentaries of these plagues argue that actually what's being described is natural processes that would have taken place anyway. The Nile floods with an infusion of mud and sand, turning it red, or maybe there was bacterial growth, which can often be red, and that in turn kills the fish, and that in turn drives out of the Nile all the frogs, and then indeed leads to the flies on the piles of frogs and skin deformities in later plagues. Firstly, the text doesn't allow you to have that narrative. God is so clearly in control of the timing, the scale, and the ending of these events that we cannot read them as natural occurrences. Rather, God mirrors, mocks, and magnifies the worshipped natural rhythms of nature to show that he is the only and truly God deserving of their worship. And he's jealous for it. It comes across he's jealous for the Israelites. He's jealous for worship. 
The fact that the Nile would have turned red annually and frogs would have emerged annually is, combined with the magician's demonic power of illusion, partly why Pharaoh remains so unmoved by this. He refuses to see that Yahweh is in control over creation, but Yahweh is using creation to demonstrate that he is above and he is beyond and he is so utterly other from his creation, that he doesn't create hopping and croaking carrot cake to emerge out of the Nile and totally flummox Pharaoh. He doesn't cause toasters to fall out the sky and then when approached, eject a hot Pop-Tart. He uses what is known and already worshipped to demonstrate that all along, all through that disgusting pagan worship of the created, he was there at the beginning and he remains sovereignly in control. Or to coin a new phrase, there's an irreducible sovereignty to creation that God owns. That's what he's demonstrating for everybody to see. How are we doing on time? 25 to 12. That's disconcerting. No, it's 11. It's fine. So Pharaoh betrays his word as soon as he sees the frogs dying. And again, he hardens his heart and cheats Moses. God responds to Pharaoh's blatant disregard for his own words and his deception and immediately and without warning causes a plague of gnats to swarm over the face of the land from the very dust of the earth at his timing, at his direction, under his control. Despite the Egyptian god of Kepra representing a flying beetle, the magicians are totally unable to replicate what God has done through Moses. They have to resign the display of power, and they even comment, this is the finger of God that has done this to us. However, they use the word, or the Hebrew is Elohim, which is denoting a deity rather than Yahweh. So even in their acknowledgement of God, they're just, again, they're just saying, oh, it's just another one of these gods. It's bigger than our God, but we don't recognize him as the one true God. Just another deity to be worshipped. Even though the magicians cannot replicate the wonder, and even though the evidence for God's power is growing, God hardens Pharaoh's heart in order to further demonstrate his power. The next three plagues, they increase in their severity with Yahweh, warning Moses, mercifully giving Pharaoh the chance to respond. If you look at chapter 8, verses 20 to 30, you see that a plague of flies will be unleashed on the land. But in order to remove all doubt that this is not a natural occurrence from the piles of frogs and fish, he's going to sovereignly protect the land of Goshen, which is where the big yellow arrow is pointing to. So this is roughly where they were. And that's where the majority of people dwelled. The majority of the Israelites lived in Goshen. And, and he spares them from this terrible plague. Pharaoh becomes increasingly desperate with these gnats, and his shocking pride gives him the ill-founded confidence to barter with the living God. It is just unbelievable, this guy. It's just on another level. He permits Moses to worship God, but within the borders of Egypt, at least don't go very far. 
Nevertheless, Moses pleads with God, who listens to him and does what he asks. And you get this beautiful relationship coming through of Moses doing what God asks exactly as he says, and then God doing what Moses asks exactly as he says. The next three plagues cause death and ruinous destruction on the land of Egypt. While sovereignly protecting Israel's livestock, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, as he keeps making himself known, causes the Egyptian livestock to die. The text says that all Egyptian livestock die, but clearly this isn't the case, because later plagues, the livestock are killed again. So there's hyperbole being used in the text to convey to the reader the extent of what, is, what God is doing, and it's important to identify that. And this would have had a massive impact. These things are getting really serious now. The food security of the Egyptians, humanitarian need, financial need, the gods of livestock, Ramon and Apis, both depicted anthropomorphically, which is a word I had to rehearse, which means like an animal, as a bull and a goat, were powerless to prevent or limit or to reverse it, Ut utterly powerless. And that would have caused some serious soul-searching, right, among the priests. Whose God is this that is doing this? In the face of this carnage, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. He does not permit Pharaoh the grace to change from the behavioral patterns that Pharaoh himself chose earlier on in the narrative. This is Pharaoh's heart being hardened now. Pharaoh's heart with no saving grace and God's mercy and softening power totally removed, allowing him to become so prideful as to refuse the retribution of the living God in the face of national destruction. What other world leader do we know facing economic annihilation, not changing his mind? It's not an ancient problem. Pride, eh? Arrogance. Plague six, boils. Moses is commanded then to take soot from the very kilns the Israelites were forced to bake bricks in and sprinkle it in the air as like a mock priestly sacrifice. We hear that word sprinkle, don't we, when we're reading about the tabernacle, and it's used here, and it's just like this kind of, what's the word, cynical nod towards your gods. You think, you believe in these gods? I'm going to, this is my sacrifice to your gods. Perhaps mocking Sekhmet, the lioness goddess of plagues and healing. It's most, most likely that this plague of boils was a type of anthrax, which is linked to rotting animals and spread by spores, except that God commanded this process to take place through the actions of Moses to demonstrate his authority over the suffering that was caused. And the magicians here, if you look in the text, they can't even stand in the presence of Moses. Where is Sekhmet? Where is your goddess of healing? Where is your deity who controls the plagues? Why can you not even stand in the presence of Moses? Your God is a dumb, still stone that is made by human hands. But despite this revelation, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart as the demonstration of his redemptive power had not yet come to fullness. We then come to plague seven, the last two and eight, 
hail and locusts. They bring absolute and total ruin to the agrarian kingdom. It's utterly destroyed. And with this increase in destruction, God reveals more of his purposes. If you look at um, verse 15 in chapter 9, for now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. I could have just wiped you out. The fact that you're still breathing is merciful. These plagues are an act of mercy. They still have time to choose him. Do you get that? Yes, they're savage, but they still have the option of turning to him. They can still worship him. The locusts, perhaps a symbolic act against Nepri, the god of grain. And that's the, that's the sky god, actually, that one that's sort of curling around. I really like that, but I don't think I'm allowed to because it's a pagan god. But uh, that's the sky god there, and then Nepri is the one in the background, the god of grain. Yahweh brings a huge and uncountable plague of locusts from the desert who hungrily and mercifully, mercif- mercilessly, mercilessly, mercilessly devour all that is left in the land of Egypt. Wheat, grain, trees, bushes, all are consumed, leaving Egypt's economy and ecology in tatters. And now, finally and finally, God works his way to the top of the pile of gods. Darkness is the plague. The god of Ra, the sun god, the most important god, the god king of all the other gods. And the Egyptians worshipped him for the provision and source of light on the earth. And after eight clean knockouts, Yahweh then brings about such an incredible darkness that it can be felt. And there is no light in the whole land of Egypt except for Goshen, where God's people are, where Joseph settled with his family. They have lights. For the rest, it's been taken away. Ra, the sun god, the creator god, he's been removed from his throne and cast into total darkness. Yahweh spoke light into existence and through his servant Moses can remove it at his pleasure. I really get the sense of how powerful God is through these, te- through, these, through these words, right? It's like unbelievable power. But Pharaoh tries again. He tries to barter for partial release. I can't get this guy. And after Moses sticks his ground and God hardens his heart for a final time in this chapter, he commands him to leave his presence and never see his face again. So there we have it. Those are the, the nine plagues in the, in the passages. And the final part of my message to you is some application. Let's bring some application out of this ancient narrative. And I want to look at two principles here which I think apply to us as a church. Number one is God's responsibility and... God, sorry, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And number two is the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. So firstly, we're presented with one of the most challenging sections of Scripture for understanding where God's sovereignty ends and where our responsibility begins. Multiple times in these three chapters, we see a mixture of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. But which one is it? Which one happens? Does Pharaoh harden his heart or does God harden Pharaoh's heart? 
We're not told explicitly what's happening, and we're left with that tension and that nuance that both God and Pharaoh are responsible for the state of his cardiovascular health. And I don't want to delve too deeply into this, primarily because I don't actually fully profess to understand it, but I just want to point it out and let that sit with you, that there is tension here, that God is in control, and our decisions are meaningful. We've got to avoid the danger of only seeing one side of this, right? If we resign all of our responsibility over to God's sovereignty, we become feckless and fatalistic in our prayer life. And if we assume too much of God's responsibility and sovereignty, we will become burdened by the weight of the eternal consequences of our actions and unable to rest in him. We need to know that both the decisions in this life are eternally important and our prayers are significant, that we are responsible for bringing his kingdom to our friends, our neighbours and our workplaces. That's our responsibility. But also trust that he will achieve it in his timing and by his sovereign grace. Maybe you have too much worry this morning. Maybe you are burdened with world events. Maybe you are burdened with what is happening around you. Trust in him and rest in him who is sovereignly responsible for your life. And your life rests in the palm of his hand. And it, nothing can take it out of his hand. Maybe you're too lazy. You need to know that God works through you. He works through your prayers through your words and through your actions, and he holds us to account for them. Secondly, I want us to look at the fact that the hardening of the heart is a fatal condition that we're all susceptible to. Medically speaking, hardening your heart is never a good thing. That's right, isn't it, Dave? He's, not, he's shaking his head. Agree with me, Dave. Oh, he's nodding his head. According to the NHS, in dilated cardiomyopathy, there's a word, I'm literally quoting now, the muscle walls of the heart become stretched and thin so that they cannot squeeze or contract properly to pump blood around the body. Can we have that slide up, Kurt? The next one. No, the one before. Ah, yes. That's a whale heart. It's cool, isn't it? You could climb in that but it's also really hard, right? So that's, that's what's happening. So your heart's literally unable to be moved to carry out its function because of disease, which ultimately, ultimately, that was your heart, you'd be dead. That would be the death of your mortal body. But spiritual hardness is much, much, much more serious. When we make a deliberate decision in our heart to resist what God is doing, to explain away his actions as coincidences or illusions like Pharaoh and the magicians, we run the risk of our spiritual heart being unable to respond to God. We become cold in our daily rhythm of following Jesus. We stop responding to God's promptings. We ignore his discipline. The truth is that even repentance itself is a gift from God an act of mercy, just like the plagues we've been reading about. But 
as we do respond to him, our hearts become broken before him. So he softens us and shapes us and molds us into his image, just like Grant brought in that word. Jesus wants to occupy the entirety of your heart, and he's knocking. And if, as we let him in, he will transform us. And we must all do this regularly, daily, before him, to pick up our cross and crucify the flesh. You know, I, b- I bought a washing machine about two years ago. It was, a, it was a really nice one. It was a Bosch. I was finally packed up, and it comes with a five-year warranty and everything. I, saw, I thought I was set for life now. That was the end of Mr. Domestic Repairer coming around and charging me money to fix it. Although it doesn't, the warranty doesn't cover Lego in the water pump. It does not cover Lego in the water pump. That's not covered. No, they said that on the phone. Um, so I was, I was therefore very surprised recently when I opened the washing machine door and it really stank of smelly, festering water. Oh, hang on, I just bought this. What's going on? And I realized it needed cleaning. And it reminded me of that Calgon advert. Washing machines live longer with Calgon. I think we all remember that. And as we all remember from the ad, Limescale can build up on your heating element and over time reduce the efficiency of your washing machine. And that's what happens to us, to every single one of us, new or old. We don't suddenly find ourselves in total darkness, having ignored the wrath of God like Pharaoh has done, but rather slowly, over time, through the difficulties of life, through the pleasures of this world, we find that coldness creeping in, that jaded approach to prayer. Our faith just starts to shrink as unanswered prayer takes its toll. We stop asking. We stop being moved by our neighbors who are without a savior. The importance of church life begins to be replaced by work or hobbies. It's a really challenging thing that David Wilkinson said. You know the guy that wrote The Cross and the Switchblade? You know, he used to watch telly from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And he sold his television and he prayed from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And that's when God baptized him in anguish and sent him to New York to reach the kids of New York. And he says in his, in his preach on anguish, we can sit and watch television and our family can go to hell. And that's challenging. It's challenging for me. That's Satan's desire for us, isn't it? To build up layer upon layer of limescale until our heart just stops beating for the one that made it. We just stop being moved by what he's asking us to do. We're just so entertained by the world. We just stop caring. And Satan just whispers, don't worry. Just be comfortable, right? Just have it easy. It's scary, isn't it? So this is what I think God wants to do this morning. This is what essentially is on my heart. I think God wants to give us fresh faith. Fresh faith, again, to trust in the miracles. We see them. We read them. Let's trust that he can do them. And I believe God wants renewal, renewal of our hearts and our minds. Can we have the band up, actually? And we're going to respond with a song. Thanks, band.
God will never leave us in a state that he's not happy with. Okay, we can't go down a road and find it's a one-way street. Ezekiel 26.36 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's God's promise to us as Christians. We're not Pharaoh anymore. God has carried out open heart surgery on your spirit if you're a Christian and given us a heart of flesh that loves him and loves his laws. Amen? His promise to you this morning is to remove the layers of spiritual limescale from your heart and make it beat for him again. It's time to take the prayer card out the drawer and bring it to God again. So if you feel the Holy Spirit has been prodding your conscience this morning, then during this song, come down to the front here and a member of the prayer team would love to pray for you. Don't leave it. Bring it to God and allow him to renew you. And I'm going to pray now. And I'd like us to stand as I think we should... Ultimately, we all need to be responding to what God is saying through this text. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in my life that you have given me a heart of flesh and taken away the heart of stone. Thank you that you are sovereignly in control of my past, my present, and my future, that you have chosen to partner with me to accomplish your will on earth. Lord, would you use me to do this? I ask you renew my heart this morning and break the layers of stone that have been forming. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are in the business of redeeming flawed people and using them for your glory on this earth, Lord. I am that flawed person. Would you use me in powerful ways by your grace to accomplish your will to be a witness to your mercy and to spread the fame of your gospel. Amen.